Open your Bibles with me, if you will. Exodus chapter 14. If you're using your pew Bible, you'll find it on page 56. Page 56. We'll read Exodus 14. Scott's going to deliver the word to us from Exodus 15, 1 through 18. And yet we need to know what's taking place beforehand. This will be helpful for us. So I'll read this text, the entirety of Exodus 14. May the Lord honor the reading of his word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of the Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot chariot, and took his army with him, took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, He pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pharaoh in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made this sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, 
watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, you are majestic in your glory. You are all-powerful. What a wonder it is, Father, that we can sit here this morning and sing, Where Shall I Be? And with confidence singing, knowing because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God has fallen upon Him for us. And we shall be with you for all of eternity and not under your wrathful judgment. Father, we thank you that you have saved us and made us your people. We thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning as your people around the word of God, united in faith. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to hear your word. We pray now for our time in it. May you be glorified. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, grace and peace from the saints at High Point Baptist Church. It's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, At High Point, we have heard much of the work that the Lord is doing here. Um, We pray regularly for you guys. We're thankful for Cody and Lucy and the ministry uh, that they have here. So it's just a joy to be with brothers and sisters together, uh, opening up God's Word together. We've just read Exodus 14. Our text is Exodus 15. But before we dive in, let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Lord, we are your redeemed people. By the blood of Christ, you have saved us from our sins, and now we have gathered to hear from you. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, why do God's people sing? You'll note that we just did it a number of times. Uh, Indeed, churches around the globe this morning will gather on the Lord's Day on Sundays to, in part, sing. While rotary clubs organize and PTAs volunteer, political groups give speeches, Christians sing. It's what we do when we get together. Why do we do this? If you grew up in church like me, you've been doing it your whole life. If we look at the end of history, Revelation 14.3 mentions Uh, The saved who were singing a new song. So we'll be singing in heaven. 
And Paul instructs the church in Colossae. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So Christians, churches, are commanded to sing. That's why we sing. Okay, but why are we commanded? And what are our songs to be about? Well, in part to help answer these questions, we will be spending some time in Exodus 15, verses 1 through 18. So I'd encourage you to turn there now if you've not already. I want to give us a little bit of context because we're kind of jumping into the middle of the book. Uh, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And just as it would be foolish to pick up the second book of the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or something of that nature without understanding the first book, uh, you can't understand Exodus without understanding Genesis. Exodus is the story of God fulfilling his promises. In particular, it's the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 12, God promised uh, Abraham three things. Uh, He promised offspring. He promised Abraham supernatural blessing, and he promised to Abraham land, a place to know God and worship him. Uh, And incredibly, these promises begin to come true in Exodus 1, when we see that barren and old Abraham's descendants are all of a sudden multiplying supernaturally. God is blessing Abraham's seed just like he said. But in Exodus 1, we encounter a problem. God's people are in the wrong land, right? They're enslaved in Egypt rather than living in the promised land of Canaan. And so in Exodus 3 and 4, the Lord reveals himself as Yahweh to Moses. Uh, And then chapters 5 through 13, uh, we encounter God's terrible plagues of judgment upon the Egyptians as Pharaoh's heart is hard. And then what we just read in Exodus 14, the Israelites walk through the Red Sea as on dry ground and God destroys the Egyptians as the Egyptians themselves confess the Lord fights for the Israelites and thus we arrive at Exodus 15 the main idea of our passage this morning is simply this Yahweh is praised for judging the Egyptians and bringing his people unto himself so read with me beginning in verse 1 up through verse 18 Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. 
The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. Well, friends, we'll have two sections this morning. The first is found in verses 1 to 12, entitled, Praise for Egypt's Defeat. Uh, And we should note that in these verses, we find the Israelites celebrating both the, the character of God and the mighty judgment of God that he's worked on the Egyptians. Okay, so look back there at verse 1. We see the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I'll sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. So again, it's important to note that throughout this song, God is going to be praised for his character, for who he is, and for what he has done. So as we're reading the passage, as we're going through these verses, I want you to pay attention and see the the slightly different nuances of praising God for who he is and for what he has done for them. So in verse 2, we see the Israelites state that Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength. He's my song. He's my salvation. What could the Israelites mean by these things? Well, God is my strength. He will empower me. He enables me to go on. You can imagine that for the Israelites, they were weak. They were feeble. Uh, They were about to go on a long and arduous journey. They had been slaves, and uh, I'm sure they weren't getting their regular 2,000-calorie diet. They probably weren't taking many vitamins and minerals. So God is their strength. And they declare that God is my song. The Lord is my song. He's my cause for rejoicing, my ultimate good, my highest satisfaction. Uh, Again, I trust you realize that the Israelites, they had no cause for rejoicing outside of the Lord. No, they had no songs of deliverance. They had only dirges. They had only mourning as slaves. But with Yahweh, they now had a song to sing, a song of celebration. They had reason to praise. And finally, they confess that the Lord has become my salvation. This, of course, happened just a few moments earlier, before their very eyes. The Israelites were no match for the Egyptians. But the Egyptians were no match for God. And so in light of this, in light of these truths, the Israelites declare in verse 2, I will praise him. I will exalt him. Uh, It's only fitting after beholding the glory of the Lord, after watching his mighty deliverance and salvation, that they would revel in who God is and what he has done for them. 
you know, it would be positively wicked of them to not respond in praise. Can you imagine if they had seen this great deliverance? If they had seen this salvation and they responded with indifference? Would that have honored God? No, it's only fitting that they would respond to God's salvation with praise. And brothers and sisters, I trust you see that so it is to be with us. We who have been saved from a danger much more deadly than enemy chariots, we've been saved from an enemy much more evil than Pharaoh, we have a great cause for rejoicing. We have seen the Lord fight for us in Jesus Christ. We have seen our sins defeated. Uh, We have seen the devil overcome. And so it's right that we should sing just like the Israelites. And and non-Christians get this, right? We all praise that which we esteem highly. We all praise that which we value, that which we think is great. All right, so if you're like my wife, uh, when you see certain homes on HGTV or around the neighborhood, you extol the, the designs and the color and the decor. If you're like me, when Tom Brady throws another touchdown pass, you jump for joy and give high fives. We all praise that which we value. This is why we should praise God. This is why we should praise God through song. Because we have a great salvation. And, and I wonder if you noticed all the first person singular pronouns in verse 2. Okay, so we're going to test your grammar a little bit. The Lord is my strength. He's my song, my salvation, my God, and my Father's God. While this song is a song for corporate Israel, it's meant to be owned and internalized by individual Israelites. And so, friends, I wonder about you this morning. It's wonderful to sing alongside those who have been redeemed, uh, but there can be a danger of thinking that somehow our neighbor's salvation helps us over the hump. Children, have you personally been born again? Have you trusted in Christ's finished work? Uh, It's a wonderful thing to come to church with your relatives and parents. You should come. You should hear the word preached. You should pray and sing. Have you owned God's salvation? Is it your salvation? The Israelites here are a model for us. I wonder, is Christ your song, your salvation, and your God? But then we come to verse 3. And really, this is one of the central themes in the past dozen chapters of Exodus. Uh, But especially concerning the events at the sea. Verse 3 says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Uh, Beloved, this is not how culture, how the society around us tends to think of God. Right? Our culture presents God as a meek and mild, benign grandfather in the clouds. Society imagines Jesus as a tame pacifist, effeminate and perhaps a modern hippie. But the Bible presents God as a warrior. Uh, Yes, the Lord is kind and loving and compassionate. Of course, yes, praise God. But he is also a warrior. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, 
Uh, you know that the line Aslan represents Jesus Christ. And there's a line that says that Aslan is not safe, but he is good. This is our king. He is a warrior. God is not safe. For those who refuse to repent of their sins, he is not safe. Oh, but he is good. He is a mighty warrior. And this is great news for God's people, right? Uh, Because what did Israel need as their backs were up against the wall, as the Egyptians were bearing down on them? Did they need a hippie? Uh, Did they need someone who would refuse to stand up to the oppressor? No, they needed a warrior. They needed somebody who would fight on their behalf. Friends, if you are in Christ, you can rejoice that God, through Christ, has defeated your sin. Just as the Israelites, you have only to be silent as Christ enters the arena on your behalf and slays the great dragon. This is profoundly good news for us, that the Lord is a warrior. And this is true in verses 4 through 10, uh, as Moses and the Israelites recap the events of the Red Sea, right? So again, we're noticing that in verse 3, the the Lord is a warrior. That's who he is. Verses 4 through 10 are kind of expanding on how the Lord is a warrior in the events of the Red Sea. Uh, I think verse 4 is a good summary, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Okay, so the ancient chariot was like the modern attack helicopter. Okay, so army, Apache, helicopters, armed to the teeth, with missiles, ready to go. That's the ancient chariot. And like a Navy SEAL with a little ant on him, just flicking it away, So God dispatches the enemy with the utmost ease. You see that God is not troubled here. God is not tired. God is not even burdened by this. He easily dispatches the enemies. Look there what verse 6 says. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Brothers and sisters, God's enemies will not stand forever. And this is a fearful thought who have not repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone for salvation. For those who remain as God's enemies, there is only the fearful expectation of judgment. And so friends, maybe you're a guest here this morning. Maybe you don't know how you ended up in a church on a Sunday morning. Or maybe you're a regular attender, but but you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian I wonder if you see yourself as God's enemy. I wonder if that sounds a little bit harsh to you. Uh, You you tend to think of yourself as basically a good person uh, who could perhaps be a little bit more devout, and and yes, you should go to church a little more often, but but you're basically on good terms with God. Uh, You're in a friendly, if somewhat distant, relationship with him. Friends, if that's you this morning... I'm sorry to say that the Bible has a much bleaker assessment of your standing with God. Ephesians 2 describes all humanity as dead in trespasses and sins. In James 4, James says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Friend, if you're here this morning, you don't have to be like Pharaoh or Isis trying to kill physically God's people to be an enemy of God. And God's enemies will be crushed. That's the bad news for you. But the good news is that the same God who is a warrior, the same Lord who shatters his enemies, is also the one who came to lay down his life for his enemies. I wonder if you've heard Romans 5.8 before. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Beloved, God doesn't only crush his enemies, he also dies for them. For it is through Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, that God's wrath against us is exhausted. It is through Jesus' death on the cross that our sins are taken away and we are reconciled to God, no longer his enemies. And then through Christ's resurrection from the dead, proving that he is indeed the only Savior of the world. One day he's coming back. One day the Lord Jesus will return He'll split open the sky. He'll crush all his enemies. But until then, salvation is offered. Forgiveness. Pardon for rebels. Oh friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, turn to him today. Repent of your sins. Confess your enmity with God. And find forgiveness and reconciliation in Christ. For the Christian here, we find great comfort and hope that our enemy will one day be entirely crushed. Though Satan has been dealt the decisive blow, we know that he still prowls around like a lion, seeking to devour anyone he can. We as Christians are no match for Satan's schemes. He's an enemy too wicked and wily for us. And yet we have a king who has fought on our behalf like King David against Goliath. So Christ Jesus has defeated our enemy and it is only a matter of time. Christian, if you are struggling against sin, rejoice that the Lord is a warrior. Rejoice that he crushes his enemies and you are not his enemy. You are his child. This is our God. Well, back in Exodus 15, the Israelites continue to recount what God has done for them. Uh, In particular, verse 9 notes the pride in the heart of, of the Egyptians. This is the pride that goes before the fall. This is the pride that led Egypt to set themselves up against the one true and living God and led to their demise. And thus, the rhetorical questions in verse 11 highlight the uniqueness of God Uh, The Egyptians had set themselves up as great. And really we see in verse 11 that they're they're nothing. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Friends, do you know the answer? There's no one. There is no one like our God. And when the Bible states that God is awesome, we should note that it uses this word in a particular way. 
Okay, because language is funny, isn't it? I can say that my socks are awesome. I can say that God is awesome. I can say I love this burger, and I can say I love my wife. So when the Bible says that God is awesome, it doesn't mean that God is awesome in the these socks are awesome kind of a way, but rather that God fills us with awe. When we see him for who he truly is, we are filled with awe. I think we get a picture of what this means in Isaiah 8. Uh, The Assyrians are coming, and it's bad news for Israel. And yet God tells the prophet Isaiah, Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Friends, God is awesome. Do you fear him? Uh, He's awesome in glorious deeds. I'm not saying that we should run away from God. I'm not saying that we should um, not seek to be with God and to know him. I'm not saying anything like that. But there should be a healthy fear, reverence, awe that we have in light of who he is. He is the mighty and glorious, infinite, consuming fire. There is no one like him. And brothers and sisters, this is why I'm so glad that, so far as I can tell, uh, your service here, it's not a flippant thing. There is a reverential tone that we should have as we come to worship. Sadly, I was just reading about a church last night that described its worship service as casual. Friends, does anything about Exodus 14 and 15 strike you as casual? Does the dead Egyptians on the shore strike you as casual? Does Israel's song here strike you as casual? Uh, Worship is not to be sullen or depressed. Uh, It's often joyful. But it's always a serious joy. It's joy rooted in who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. So as I gather here with you this morning, I'm encouraged by the work that Cody and David and Eddie are doing here and leading you all to worship the Lord who is awesome. Well, these are the truths in our first section. Our second is found in verses 13 to 18, entitled, Praise for Israel's Deliverance. If verses 1 through 12 looked back at the Red Sea deliverance, uh, these verses look forward to future events. Uh, In my Bible, in the ESV, some of these verses... Uh, use past tense verbs. The Hebrew is a bit tricky here, but there's no doubt that, that the Israelites are singing about future events, events not yet happened. And, and essentially, these verses 13 through 18 deal with Israel's departure from Egypt and their exodus to their destination. So we see the other nations that the Israelites are literally going to walk by in verses 14 and 15, and look there at verse 16. It states, terror and dread fall upon them. Uh, That's Philistia, Edom, Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Like when you see a dangerous animal 
and you, you stay as still as you possibly can so as not to provoke it. Uh, we just saw a rattlesnake in our yard the other day, and uh, I'm not from Texas. That's unusual. That's scary, right? We, we back away slowly. You don't want to mess with that. Uh, these nations realize that they don't want to mess with Israel. But it's not because Israel is great. Uh, what we've been saying for these past few minutes is evidently true to the other nations. It's not that Israel it's great, is great. It's that their God is great. And so these other nations are, are afraid because Yahweh is a warrior. And now they are passing by. Uh, this, of course, raises the question, where exactly are the Israelites going? I wonder if you picked up. We, we get some hints, but, but there's no name. Uh, look there at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Uh, the image is of, of a shepherd guiding them protecting them, leading them along to God's holy abode. Abode, uh, you know, it means abide. It's a dwelling place. And so God seems to be bringing his people unto himself where God is, right? So you remember God's promises to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing. What was so great about the land is that God would dwell with Abraham and his descendants there. That was what was so great about it. It was indeed his holy abode. We get more details in verse 17. We read, You will bring them and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. All right, so I wonder if you're able to put some of those pieces together. And I hope you are, because it's really incredible. We see there the mountain, the sanctuary, the abode. Part of the reason this is incredible is because the story of the universe is the story of mountains. In the beginning, in Genesis, we read of the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.10 states that uh, rivers flowed out, or that from Eden flowed out a river. And so I ask you, where do rivers flow from? Okay, they, they flow to valleys, but they flow from mountains. Uh, indeed, Ezekiel 28 refers to Eden, the garden of God, as the holy mountain of God. Uh, this is just to say that Adam and Eve were on a mountain, and who dwelled with them there? God. It was his holy abode. Well, what does this have to do with Exodus 15? I think that by saying that the Israelites are going to a new mountain abode of God, it's as if the Israelites in Exodus 15 are, are looking back at Eden and saying, we're on our way to experiencing what Adam and Eve once had. We will live with God in his holy abode. And while Exodus 15 doesn't provide us the exact name of this location, later in Israel's history, we will learn of a place called Mount Zion, the new, or rather the Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. Verse 17 again explicitly calls this future mountain abode of God a sanctuary, 
And this is significant because you remember what was at the center of Jerusalem's uh, city? It was the temple. It was the, the holy of holies. It was the sanctuary where God dwelled among and with his people. Just as in Eden, when God dwelled on a mountain with his people, so too in Jerusalem, God would dwell on Mount Zion with his people. Jerusalem was supposed to be the place where Eden was recovered. And here in Exodus 15, the Israelites are headed there. This is great and glorious news for the Israelites. Unfortunately, after Exodus 15 comes Exodus 16. And in Exodus 16 and following, we see the Israelites sin. They grumble. And the, the rest of Israel's history, Israel's history is really them acting a lot like Adam and Eve, disobeying God's word, forfeiting their status on God's holy mountain. Just as Adam and Eve were exiled because of their sin, so Israel is exiled from Mount Zion because of their sins. For the second time in human history, God's dwelling place would not be with man because of their sinfulness. And so is there any hope? If Israel and Adam and Eve both forfeited their right, is there any hope that God would once again dwell with his people? Uh, That he would live amongst them? That they might know and enjoy him? Yes. Yes, friends. Listen to John's words in Revelation 21, referring to the end of time. John says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be there as their God. Beloved, that mountain sanctuary, that sanctuary where God abides, it's still coming. Not just for the Israelites, but for you and me. God will dwell with his redeemed. The effects of sin totally overcome. The earthly Jerusalem at its best, where Israel was heading in Exodus 15, even at its most prosperous, was still only a small glimpse of the heavenly Jerusalem. And the old earthly temple, the old earthly sanctuary, the high priest could enter God's presence only once a year, and that on pain of death if done wrongly. Yet Revelation 21:22 states that there will be no temple in the new Jerusalem, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. Friends, we are like the Israelites. We are headed to the holy abode of God. We are headed to the mountain sanctuary, not to be taken away by sin. Uh, notice that Exodus 15, 18 ends, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Uh, this is the hope we have in Christ. So beloved, as we conclude, why do Christians sing? We sing because we have a God who is worthy of singing about. We sing because God is worthy of our praises. Cody told me yesterday that the, the, the acoustics of this room are really great, and he wasn't lying, that you can really hear you all sing, and it's super encouraging. 
We should sing as Christians loud enough for those around us to hear us. Uh, We should sing loud enough that people get to hear and understand the gospel truths that we get to proclaim. Don't mumble under your breath about the glory of God. That's a contradiction in terms. No, let us sing for joy. For we have a reason to rejoice. In Christ, our enemy has been defeated, and we are now headed to our heavenly home. Let's pray. Lord God, just as the Israelites were undeserving of your grace and your steadfast love, so we confess that we are unworthy of this great deliverance that you have worked for us. And yet what a privilege and joy it is to gather together, to sing your praises, to hear from you, to pray to you. Lord, you are awesome. Impress that upon us. You have done mighty deeds on our behalf. And so we praise you this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.